Hi everybody, this is Ryan. Just wanted to drop a quick word before the podcast begins. MatineeCast 253 features a discussion on Emerald Fennel's 2020 film, Promising Young Woman. If you aren't already familiar with the film, you should know that the story and the conversation Ruby and I are about to have involve sexual assault and violence against women. While I do hope you'll join us for what was a really thought-provoking talk, please consider this a content warning and a trigger warning for those topics. Thanks for listening, and on with the show. You know, we're, we're, we're creeping up on like a year of, of work Zoom calls and that kind of thing. You've noticed that like the at-home dress code has like slipped and slipped and slipped. Just, I don't think I know anyone who's like bought or ordered, I guess in this case, like new clothes. Literally right. everybody lives in their pajamas. Like even if you do ever have to go out to like get groceries or whatever, we're just like... We've rolled out of bed. Like, literally everyone has rolled out of bed to do whatever business they have to do. It's all going back to first year university, you know, where you would show up to lecture (laughs) in pajama pants and a jersey. This is literally it. Like, that's where the kids who live on campus. Can't say I saw that one coming, but, uh, you know, I I can't say I saw any of this coming, but certainly not that. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 253 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. As the lockdown has progressed and it creeps towards its second year, one could be understood for feeling lonely. I mean, forget about fatigue from Zoom calls and all things virtual. How does one actually manage to meet anyone? during such times. How, dear listener, is one supposed to make new friends when we have to keep proper social distance? Well, if you're me, and luckily for me, I am me, you reach out to those people you've been virtual friends with for a long time and you look to up the ante. You go beyond all those likes and retweets and DMs and actually talk to someone who's been a part of your orbit for so long that you can't even remember. Dear listeners, I am really excited to be doing just that for the second time in three episodes. We're across a wire tonight to Hamilton, Ontario, and we're talking to Ruby Dillon. How are you, Ruby Dillon? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've never done this before, so really excited oh, to man. talk about movies in this format. We- <laughs> I, I I've said this before. It's it's kind of like a drug. Like you're gonna do it the one time, and you're gonna have so much fun. You're gonna look for other shows to do, and then I, I'm gonna put the over under on six weeks before you're shopping for a microphone. Oh yikes! <laughs> <laughs> I don't need more hobbies. <laughs> None of us do. On episode 253, we will be discussing promising young woman. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn about Ruby. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, so apparently you know how this goes, and I'm, I'm always surprised that people are actually listening to this stuff, uh, but you've heard a few episodes. Um, Ruby, get us going here. What is the first movie you can remember seeing in a theater? Um, the first movie I ever saw was Batman Returns, um, and it, like, it blew me away. It was so weird. 
I loved it so much, I became so obsessed with Batman in particular and Catwoman. I went to school the fall, like after the weekend, and we had journal time, I think it was like grade one. And like, I wrote the most elaborate tale about Batman being my dad and Catwoman <laughs> being my mom. And then like fighting over me being like good or bad and definitely got a note sent home from the teacher for like, this is nice, but that's not what we're asking her to do. <laughs> so like, it started this like, the comic book movies and just like fantasy, like all those movies and my love for them started from, I think that point. I love it. It's crazy because I mean, we're, we you know, we're on the end of like 10 years straight of saturation with, um, with comic book culture that it, it's almost hard to remember that there was a time where it wasn't really a thing. Like we, you know, we had four Superman movies over the course of like 10 years and then nothing for a little while. And then, yeah, you just, you had these, these Batman movies turn up and, and they were everywhere, right? Like those logos were in McDonald's and in, in department stores and on t-shirts and everything like that. And it was just that one set of characters and properties. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then it just, it ballooned. Like, yeah. Oh it was, yeah. yeah. Like you said, everywhere. Like I had a watch, I had like toys, I had, clothes and like cereal like whatever you wanted with that character you had it you had it now let's let's talk about the drive-in so do you do you remember anything about like where it was and the experience of actually going to that drive-in yeah it's actually still standing um it's still like the hamilton area it's called starlight um it's it actually when like the, all this covid stuff started it i guess regained popularity it's quite a big draw in summer around here but I completely forgot about the format, to be honest, because uh-huh. I'm like used to going to like movie theaters and I guess the traditional sense now. But back when we saw Batman Returns, so like I imagine you went with your family yeah. to this? I went with my uncle, my brother, and my cousin. I think it was like a Michael J. Fox movie, and I could not, I could probably look it up and figure <laughs> out what it was. But um, I didn't watch it because I fell asleep. And I remember we brought our own snacks in the glove compartment, which I don't think you're supposed to do. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was just, it was wild to me that like we were in my uncle's car that I had sat in so many times and we were watching a movie. It was the future, but but not at all because it's like absolutely not the future of movies. For somebody who's in grade one, and I guess you're like six, I guess, when you're in grade one, it must have been just like, you know, so, such an like yeah like you say like such an adventure of an experience like you you drive out to the middle of nowhere and then you you know you listen to you're listening through the radio and you're looking out the windshield and you know you're being told a story it's it's just it's nothing at all like what you've experienced as a kid like no certainly not watching tv or anything like that it's completely different and so large it doesn't feel like a collective audience experience either like i couldn't tell you no. what the other people in the other cars were reacting yeah, like to yeah, this movie. but i can tell you that me and my brother and my cousin were just like oh my god what is happening like just it blew our little minds that might have been for the best all right uh let's uh I, and, and you're making this me you're making me miss the drive-in i need it to get warmer so i can go to a drive-in oh. again I, I did go to one last year um all right let's flip the script a little bit what is one of the last movies you saw that's not one of the movies we're going to talk about today uh actually toy story i have been watching it on loop for the past two years because my nephew has turned two and it is the thing he is obsessed with like, <laughs> okay. it, it could end 
And I couldn't even tell you if I'm watching Toy Story 1, 2, 3, or 4. It's just a constant loop of like Woody and Buzz all the time. But uh, yeah, Toy Story 1, I'd say, uh, was the last one that I saw. I mean, you know, right now, anything that keeps the kids quiet and lets every and lets the grownups work <laughs> is 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 good, right? Basically, but like you forget uh, how just perfect it is. Like it's just such a great movie, and there's so many adult jokes in it that kids are never going to laugh at, but everyone else does. That that was the thing. Disney and, and Pixar were doing those kinds of things early on. They were including those little winking mentions and that kind of thing. I mean. Disney was doing this a lot back in the day. Like they were really slipping in a lot of stuff that I feel like they've just backed off for one reason or another, possibly just for, you know, to appease uh, parent groups or something like that. But I mean, even just when, you know, Buzz like hits his little button and, and uh, the pig is like, Oh, (laughs) impressive wingspan, you know, stuff like that. You're like, wait a minute, what? Um, (laughs) When I think about toy story as well, I also think about the fact that, um, that first one is just so visually different from the rest. I wouldn't call it dated because it still looks really great, but you can see the progression when you go from one to two, even like it's a big jump, but still like it doesn't, it's not jarring to look at. It's still really impressive. Um, and it is a kid's movie. So I guess that's the benefit of it is it is a cartoon. You know, at the end of the day, like you're doing OK. Like it's not like you're watching Baby Shark on a loop. <laughs> I mean, that's happened too. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, the, you could you could be doing far worse for a two year old. Um, all right. In, in <laughs> yeah, other he's, news, he's cool. Ruby Dillon, what is one of the worst movies you have ever seen? OK, this took me some time to think of because I generally don't really hate movies but i really did not like hubie halloween what in the Um, world is hubie halloween oh my gosh so i don't know if you're aware that adam sandler has this huge deal with netflix and he gets to make whatever he wants (laughs) right 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 i love like it's it's a collective like known that like adam sandler even if it's a dumb movie i'm probably gonna end up watching it because like it's the only actor that all of like collectively my siblings, my family, like extended family agrees on. Um, okay. Cause it's like, I don't know. It's like harmless unless you're watching like uncut gems, uh, uncut gems. Sorry. Um, that's why we gave it a chance. Cause it didn't look like it was going to be good, but we're like, ah, oh, whatever. It'll be an entertaining Halloween movie that we haven't seen before. And uh, Oh my God, it was horrible. Like you recall, Adam Sandler going through this phase of like baby voice, like yeah. Billy Madison baby voice type stuff, which was funny when I, when he was like when he was younger and I was younger, uh, but it was so grating and the story is so dumb and everyone there is there for a check. It's huh. so relentlessly stupid. I felt really dumb. Like, is there a plot? I mean, you know, I know I know there's always a plot, but is there actually a plot to this movie? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hesitate there because it went, went off track a lot. Um, so I'm assuming they had a point A and a point B and they just let him do whatever he wanted in the middle. Right. Um, it was a mess. Complete mess. Oh, God. Sandler, I mean, I it, Sandler is such a weird beast because 
the guy tries every now and then, you know, like once in a blue moon, the guy will drop like an uncut gems or a punch drunk love, Mm -hmm. or even, you know, a movie that's not great, but he's not bad in it. Like, um, men, women, and children, which was uh, a Jason Reitman movie from a few years ago. And like Spanglish. Yeah, Spanglish. I mean, he tries getting out of his little box and usually either the movie, his performance, or in every once in a while, both just don't seem to latch for a lot of people. And he just goes back to his comfort zone. I don't know that I blame him. It seems like he's having a good time and he hires all of his buddies. Like who wouldn't want to get paid that much money to just hang out with their friends and make dumb jokes? Like. Yeah. Why not? I don't blame Sandler. I bl- yeah, I, I blame the people who pay Sandler. You know, like there's some some decision making that I really want to you know dig into. But no, I don't blame Sandler. But like, yeah, I, I guess you know you you were probably just outvoted that night. <laughs> you know what? I can't blame other people. I was just like, uh, why not? Halloween. Right. We haven't seen it before. <laughs> oh yikes! I like yeah. It really painted myself into a corner with this one. It was it was my idea. But oh, well. I regretted it. You, you you know better for next time. Exactly. All right. Um, moving on. What is a classic or essential film that you have not yet seen? Big Lebowski, which surprises a lot of people. And I don't know if you would consider it classic, but I consider it one of those essentials that people who watch movies tend to talk about quite a lot. I'm a little it's, bit ashamed about the fact that I haven't seen it. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy because... The movie, when it first dropped, it, it it feels like it just kind of arrived and it didn't really, you know, transcend. Like it, it wasn't like it was up for Oscars or anything like that. And it was it, it was the Coen Brothers, right? Like it was after Fargo. It was after they were a thing. And then over time, it became this like it's kind of started out as like a cult classic, right? Like you'd get like Stoner Frat Boys would be like quoting it forever. And then from there it became like a legit uh part of the canon in at least in like it's at least now i'd say a pop culture classic if it's not necessarily taught in school when people are dropping references do your eyes just kind of glaze over and you shake your head um so like i i think i feel like i use the gifts from that movie (laughs) a lot like i haven't seen the movie but i use them out of context so like that like that's just your opinion man like i don't even know how he says that in the movie but i use it all the time um so i feel like i know things about it i know everything like around it uh it's gotten to the point where like do i need to see it anymore like i don't know everyone see that i know seems to love it um which is why like i don't really tell people that i haven't seen it and when they find out they're just shocked but right. yeah so i don't like i guess i i try to just talk around it <laughs> rather than talk about it i mean if you're using gifts i think that's I th- that's when you cross the line you know if you hadn't seen it and you just use the lines or whatever but if you're if you're dropping gifts i think that's when you've started to put yourself into a weird place I would I would recommend it. I think it holds up. I think it's fun. Next, like, I mean, next time instead of a Sandler movie, I say you throw that on. The, the cool part is that it's talky. So if you just wanted to kind of throw it on and listen and do some other stuff, you could you could follow along with it because it's not exactly like it's complicated. All right, big yeah, Big Lebowski. I mean, this is a safe space. I like that people share in in, in on this podcast. You know. <laughs> I'm judging you for using the gifts. I'm not judging you for not having seen the movie. I'm judging you for, you know, that's that 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 will not stand. 
if I'm searching for like shrug and Jeff Bridges from that movie is the first thing that comes up, it's it's still applicable. <laughs> All right. Last but not least, for any rhyme or reason, what is a movie you wish you had made? Get out. I okay. Just, yeah i I wish I was that smart. Um, I thought like when I saw it, I just. It like arrested me. It's so smart. It's so brilliant. It's so bold. I I just I wish I could hang hang out with Daniel Kaluuya for like a day. <laughs> like I every time I watch it, I find something else that is smart or hilarious or really sharp and pointed about it. And I wish I was responsible for that. I just think it's amazing. Yeah, that's a movie. Um, you know, when we were. Um killing time uh in between the podcast regular and and getting back to it in the fall when we were doing the the winchester chronicles um we talked about a lot of movies from the last decade that we thought had defined the last decade and that was one we didn't i we didn't cover it for for reasons i don't entirely remember but that is one of the movies from the last 10 years that i'm like i always come back to it just because it's so damn sharp right it, I just like everything about it is so well put together. Like the casting is impeccable. The timing on the jokes is like incredible. The messaging is excellent. And like the, I, what I loved most about it and uh, it still happens to this day when people watch it is the conversation around it afterwards. Um, oh, yeah. I just, I find that's really rare uh, and was like, a huge awakening for a lot of people when they saw that movie. Yeah, there, there, there was nothing more interesting to me than looking around at the other white people in my theater walking <laughs> out of that movie, you know, and just like I, I have never seen like so much white discomfort in one place. And that it was, was. I think for people of color who were watching that movie that was the one of the best things about it was the discomfort of people around us that's actually one of the things that stands out the most about the experience of watching that movie is uh as i guess the the discomfort around us because we were the conversation that black people and people of color had about this movie was different than the conversation that white people were having around this movie and not for lack of enjoyment or the, like the, the core aspects of the movie itself, but uh, the fact that we felt that discomfort from other people. Um, Mm -hmm. It was really an interesting dynamic and really cool, really cool to see actually. So, I mean, it's, it's funny because ordinarily when I ask people like, well, you know, the, what is the movie you wish you made and why, um, th- this is, this is not one of those me- reasons where I need to ask why, because anybody would give their right arm to not only create something, um, special, but create something that has this kind of effect on the audience. Like it yeah. stays with you. Just top to bottom. It's so well-crafted too. It's not like, it's not like it's a message movie that's like eating your vegetables you know what i'm saying like a no seriously because like a lot of a lot of so-called important movies you kind of gotta brace yourself like you gotta be like all right this is gonna make me feel gross and this is gonna be in black and white and it's gonna be really dry and it's gonna you know i'll get there and you know whatever message it happens to be but this is a movie that's just can play on its own it's just a pop movie but is so mm-hmm. interwoven with such sharp commentary on 
you know, North America right now, the world right now. A hundred percent. And I think the timing of it was perfect. Like it came out at a time where it was, I guess this conversation could happen in the way that it was happening after that movie. Like people were um, honest about their experiences and uh, it, it served as a platform to have those discussions with other people. I think it was eye-opening for a lot of people in a lot of different ways uh, in that like this is either this is behavior that I've participated in or I have felt this way. I have been on the receiving end of this. So it was yeah. uh, just phenomenal in every way. I was just so happy that uh, the reaction to it was just so unanimously positive. All right. There's uh, there's a whole bunch about Ruby uh, that I'm learning at the same time as you, because as I said, you know, we've been <laughs> digital friends this whole time and we're, we're, we're getting a, we're, you know, we're having our beer for the first time live on our, on this mic, but we have a movie to talk about. And um, I should say at this point, Ordinarily, we sort of try to keep the conversation around uh, the films that we talk about spoiler-free, but we do really have to talk about the ending of Promising Young Woman to to really do its service. So we will sound a spoiler alert and get into that, um, you know, late in the review if you want to stay um, spoiler-free. But we will have both a spoiler-free and then spoiler-laden conversation about Promising Young Woman right after this. Promising Young Woman is written and directed by Emerald Fennell. It stars Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Laverne Cox, Connie Britton, Clancy Brown, Jennifer Coolidge, and then a lot of other people who show up for a scene or two. Promising Young Woman is the story of Cassie. That's Carrie Mulligan. As Cassie is turning 30 years old, her life is a curious to behold. A med school dropout, single, living with parents, working at a crummy coffee shop. Cassie doesn't really seem to have a whole lot going on to the casual observer. However, Cassie has secrets. The first secret is that she quietly spends her time going to bars and clubs and acting fall down drunk. Inevitably, a man will offer to help her out, take her back to his place, and start making moves while she is obscenely vulnerable. In these moments, Cassie snaps too, drops the act, and holds her assailant's feet to the fire while she calls bullshit in no uncertain terms. The second secret is Cassie's burden that a series of events brings back to the forefront. See, Cassie dropped out of med school after her dearest friend Nina was raped and her case against her assailant went nowhere. Now, years later, Cassie's in search for truth and justice in the harsh light of day, hopefully better late than never. Promising Young Woman wasn't sold this way. Watch its candy-colored, Britney-scored trailer, and you'd probably think you were about to watch some sort of bloody revenge tale that would make the Joker blush. So pop quiz, Hotshot, and what did you make of the bait-and-switch? Were you thrown for a loop by the story that unfolded, or did it actually draw you in deeper? For me, it actually drew me in deeper. I appreciated that it was more than what the trailer made it out to be it's a lot deeper than you expect it to be and i think it made it that much more impactful than the i guess the horror thriller genre that it was uh advertised as 
it talks about things and touches on things that I didn't expect it to do. And it was a surprise, a shocking surprise, but one that I really appreciated. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm all one for any kind of revenge movie, you know, like I, I still, I still enjoy certain elements about like Kill Bill as, as a, for instance, this movie, it certainly did frame Cassie as some sort of slasher or some sort of um, kind of angel of vengeance who was going to punish uh, the men who she interacted with. That is not the case. She does constantly hold people to account in this movie, but not in the way that it's sold. Now, I do know some people kind of bristle at that like some people want to go in and see a slasher yeah. movie and they'll come away from it saying like oh man that wasn't what i thought what i was going to get but i think like like i think we're both in agreement that that works in this film's benefit 100 percent. and i guess there is a little bit like you said a little bit of that disappointment that that just rewards that revenge doesn't go as far as you expect it to go but that's okay because that probably changes how you feel about this character as she moves through the movie. Definitely. Now we haven't actually talked too much about the movie itself. I, I, I take it you enjoyed this movie. I loved this movie. And it feels strange to say that considering the subject matter. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And I recommend it to people, but again, you have to give them those warnings and some, you kind of wonder what they're going to think about you after you recommend it to them. But I love that it's, like you said, it's a little disarming because it's it's candy colored. It's got that millennial girl soundtrack attached to it. But then the subject matter is so heavy, but it's handled in this interesting, really intelligent, really cutting way. Um, because all the content, all the things you see in it, they're things you've seen and heard before. And they're horrible stories, but it's presented in this pretty package. Um, which I thought was really interesting and really cool. Um, I loved the performances in it quite a bit. Um, I thought Carrie Mulligan was just bang on fantastic. But then those 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 nice guys that you you meet mm. throughout the film too. There's something smarmy about all of them, and you can point to it and be like, I know this person. <laughs> like I've met this person before. Okay, so you you, you touch on oh, a lot sorry. there, which is good. So let's let's no no let's don't, don't ever be sorry here. Um, let's let's break some of this down. I mean, one of the first things that you mentioned that I really took a shining to is the look and the styling of this film. Like you know, you use that 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 candy colored, really bright palette. Like this is a movie that's told in all kinds of turquoises and pinks and even right down to like the colors of the her nail polish mm -hmm. and then like you said like that that poppy millennial soundtrack with its spice girls and its britney and its and its paris hilton um what i thought is is brilliant about all of that and and the way that um emerald fennel employs it all is it allows us into this very, very unsavory mm -hmm. story, you know, like it gets back to what I was saying before about like eating your vegetables, like, all right, this is going to be a heavy yeah. movie, you know? And I mean, there were other movies this year, you know, that dealt with all kinds of, of topics that were important, but you could tell that they were important, mm -hmm. right? Like you were going to, they were going to be dry. They were going to be really drab, that kind of thing. And they wanted you to appreciate the gravitas. And it's, it's weird because 
on the one hand, it kind of plays with that bait and switch. You know, you think you're coming into something glossy and, and bright. And meanwhile, there's this real violence underneath yeah. it. But but it do, that's exactly what it does. It bring it allows you to, to, to stay with it. Otherwise, you might say, you know, you might turn away. You might not mm-hmm. want to go. There. Yeah, it's like it almost it's almost like the colors and the music make it accessible um, and palatable to watch what you're watching on the screen. Totally. And the, I mean, the other thing too, is that it makes me think about how a person like Cassie would have to kind of shine things on lest she drive people away. Mm-hmm. You, you, you may in your life know somebody who wears a bright pink hoodie over a Supergirl t-shirt. Meanwhile, inside she's going through su- such shit, mm-hmm. you know, she looks so chipper on the outside or so girly or so whatever. But meanwhile, inside she's wrestling with so much crap, but it's just her one way to yeah. cope. You see the two sides of her, of Cassie um, throughout the movie and she switches it on and off like a light switch. And that's, it's wild to see. It's almost like whiplash when she does it. Um, but it's, it's fantastic. Like I, I liked that roller coaster quite a bit. She's got these like beautiful, colorful nails. She's like petite and blonde and like works at this beautiful, colorful coffee shop in the day. She wears like really vibrant, bright, uh, happy. Like that's what you, you get from the persona she puts out there. And then you realize she's dealing with this, this trauma. And at night, she's a completely different person. Like she's this person who's seeking revenge she's seeking vengeance a lot of it comes down to mulligan's performance right like mulligan it's crazy to think me saying mulligan's been around for a while but um (laughs) she has because in a weird little uh, you know this this show has been on for 11 years now and the first episode that we ever did um we talked about her breakout performance and that was in 2009 we've been watching her play everything from a Bennett sister to, you know, to, to something like this. And she really has a way of getting into the complexity of it. You know, it's not a performance that hangs on sorrow and anguish for a hundred, for, for two hours. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. this is a performance where a lot of her pain, she has to carry in different ways from scene to scene for sure and she lets it break it's it's brilliant the way she lets it break a little in her face in certain moments um in the way she says certain things like she stresses certain words or like it uh it's very restrained what she she does in this movie um and it makes her less of a cartoon character like it could it could go way overboard and she's like this venge this person seeking revenge um but it doesn't go there because she's so controlled in the way she presents this character i mean the unfortunate reality is that society kind of demands it upon Mm -hmm. her you know like they they, a society would not let somebody like her carry that pain outwardly because it's going to make them uncomfortable or it's going to make them depressed or whatever. So they demand that she do this. And Mulligan finds a way to put that into everything from her posture to her, her mannerisms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I like how you put that because that's, that's completely true in that maybe we wouldn't even 
be as accepting of this character like it wouldn't be as easy to watch it's it's kind of sick to make to say this but the movie is trying to make us feel comfortable in something that is like wildly uncomfortable yeah and it does a really good job of that where it kind of pulls the rug out from you in certain points of the film and you're still standing in this like colorful happy world when some of these moments happen um it could be like her parents living room where everything's covered in plastic and floral print and there's like the like her world falls apart in that room but everything is like pretty there so like aesthetically everything is fine like on the outside for her um but inside it's a completely different story i mean even her little notebook where she keeps a tally of her you know her her I don't. I don't even know what to call them. Like it, it's almost like a conquest book. But like when she, where she keeps a tally of these men who she interacts with, it's held together with a scrunchie. Yeah, yeah, and she uses different colors, and I don't know what they mean, but different colors for every encounter, I guess. And it like everything is just so bright and wonderful, and then you, yeah. you, you kind of think about what these things mean, and they might be pretty, and easy to look at but then when you think about what they are it's it becomes very uncomfortable very quickly now the movie um you know it clearly has a target that it wants to hit a lot i mean listen along with the the sexual assailants and the and the rapists that are you know deeply in the crosshairs the other thing that this movie wants to hammer on rightfully so are the facilitators, you know, and that's why the, the plot um, really goes to, you know, the Dean that didn't listen to the accusation or the friend that didn't lend a hand or, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly the lawyer who, who prosecuted the case against her. What did you make of that whole tack of not necessarily, not exactly, you know, yes, going after the men who commit these deeds, but also going after the people who allow it to happen. I love that they did it this way because none of this happens in a vacuum. The points that you mentioned just there, like the the friend who who didn't help or or didn't believe, um, and the dean in particular, those moments made me angry as I was watching them um, because these are excuses, reasons, and validations that you hear from people who haven't experienced it like sexual abuse, sexual harassment um, themselves. Um, And it's reasons and excuses you hear in the news. Emerald Fennell did an amazing job of just like incorporating all of that that you would hear. And I liked that that's how the story is structured about like the friend you would go to to tell this story to, The, the, the people at school you would go to to tell this story to, escalating it to you know taking it to court like that's the progression of it is how you would be telling people about this happening to you um and i think it's really clever in that way but seeing how those people reacted is so disappointing and so heartbreaking but an excellent structure to the film it really allows the audience like you say to understand how these things do not happen in a vacuum that you know, I, I think even though it's 2021, that a lot of people uh, have in their head the, the that sexual assault and rape is the kind of thing that happens with strangers in back alleys. You know mm-hmm. that that it's it's the kind of thing that doesn't happen to promising young women. 
you know, and, yeah. and that it, it, it only could happen if somebody didn't have somewhere to turn, somewhere to call, somewhere to go. And that I believe is what gives this film a lot of its power is as much as Cassie is wanting to take out her vengeance on the men and hold the men to account. She wants to hold the whole system to account. Mm-hmm. And it re- like, I mean, it reminds me of there's that scene in, um, you know, an- another movie that's, that's problematic. Um, it, it, there's that scene in um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, where um, Francis McDormand is talking to the priest and she brings up the whole nature of culpability and how mm-hmm. laws have been passed saying if you are part of a gang, you as, or you are as culpable as the whole gang, you know? And she, yeah. she says she says it in a much more Francis McDormand way. I'm not doing it nearly <laughs> any justice. Um, I'll, I'll include I'll include the speech in the, the show clip, notes yeah. if people are curious. But I think that's that's the thing this movie wants to say is if you have questioned a survivor if you have not helped if you have made an excuse if you've asked what were they wearing or or it couldn't have been him because he's such a nice guy like three billboards says you're culpable it does an excellent job of of painting that picture of putting those characters in that position which is vengeance in a way um and i appreciated that it was handled the way it was. The crazy thing about that particular type of vengeance is at every turn, even with the guys that she brings home from the bar, she gives her target an out, you know, mm-hmm. like she's, she's really not out there with some sort of field knife looking to lop off balls <laughs> like that. That is yeah. really, that is what this movie was painted as. And that is not what this movie is. Every time she, you know, gets somebody in her sights she gives them the chance, like she gives them the chance that Nina didn't get. She's like, all right, mm-hmm. explain. And it's, I guess, very surgical in the way she asks these questions, in the way she waits for these responses and lets these people, these nice guys, the dean, the friend, all of them really fall over themselves and continue to make these justifications, these excuses but they still feel the same way. Um, They don't say they were wrong, uh, which is realistic. It's it's extremely realistic. Um, And it's almost like she's holding a mirror up to these people and they see it, but they're not gonna change what, how they are or how they react to this situation until um, she takes it that step further. It's it's crazy because she's trying to give them a chance and they never take it because I mean, first of all, there's just, there's nothing to take, you know, they, they did what they did, yeah. but almost right down the line with one exception that we'll get to in a second, they all still try to paint the excuse. Like there's no, you know, I shouldn't have, but I did. And I was thinking yeah. this and I did like there, you know, they use the excuse of, we were so young or these mil- these boys lives will get ruined that kind of, you know those yeah. kinds of brock turner excuses if i can coin a exactly. term i don't think that is a term and th- those it, kinds of ideas yeah that's exactly that that's exactly what what it makes you think of like i know for most women um they know they have or they know of someone who has uh experienced sexual harassment or abuse um, so it, it hit really hard. 
um, to hear those excuses presented the way they were in this movie coming from the people that they were coming from. These are all educated people. They're mm-hmm. presumably liberal people. These are people who clearly understand the nature of sexual assault yeah. and yet don't want to cop to it. There are two guys in this movie who I do want to talk about. The first is, so she meets Ryan, which thanks for that, Emerald Fennel. Um <laughs> Did not make this movie at all uncomfortable for me. Um, Ryan is a guy who she was. She went to med school with. He comes back into her life when he drops into her coffee shop, and they sort of start dating. For me, I don't know if it's because I know Bo Burnham from other things. Um, I felt comfortable like immediately with the whole situation i was like oh my gosh what a nice guy (laughs) even though we've seen Uh all these other nice guys in this movie and the whole time in the back of your mind you're like i don't know something isn't right and just like her you're you kind of tell yourself to get over it because you're like they wouldn't go that far in this movie like there's got to be something nice for us um so yeah that i i went into it hopeful uh when we meet him i don't know bull burnham that well except to know that he was the director of eighth grade and because of that i was i just had my haunches up this whole movie i'm like every guy who has come into her orbit is shit this is another guy who's going to be shit and it's a good thing he's really tall but that was the only thing i could probably probably push against this movie is where the ryan arc goes again thank you emerald fennel um (laughs) where that whole arc goes i i wasn't stunned or shocked or anything like that just because the moment he shows up i'm like this is gonna be one more quote nice guy unquote that that just gets added onto the pile i kept talking myself out like my mind is just like no they wouldn't they wouldn't do that to us but uh they did that confrontation uh that they have in his office it just compounds like what cassie has been experiencing for the entire film is just like horrible nice guys (laughs) over and over and over again it was disappointing not only for for Cassie, uh, heartbreaking for Cassie, uh, but also for us because we just wanted her to have a good thing. It's so earned because at the same time, over the course of two hours, we watch this couple have their little bumps. Like first, mm-hmm. he plays his hand a little too quick, and you you know oh, yeah. he you, you can see her like she kicks the trash can on the way because she's like, oh, I thought you were different, but you're not that different. You're making your play. Yeah. And then he kind of, he busts in on her, um, you know, her, her vengeance act. And it seems yeah. like she's just like completely stepping out on him as much as it ends up turning into this really bubbly, let's sing Paris Hilton in the pharmacy <laughs> type of rom-com romance. It's actually had a lot of ups and downs and maturity to it by the time we mm-hmm. get the rug pulled out for it. So it's, yeah. It's it's a really interesting character and a really interesting subplot that that fuels the main plot. There's there's all these setups too of like, this is the nice guy. Like look at him, he works with children in a hospital. Like they yeah. they really yeah. try to paint him with this the nicest guy. Not like we've seen quote unquote nice guys throughout the movie, but he's different. I think that's that's really smart having that character and yeah and pulling the rug out from under us with that same character is is great and then the other man that i want to talk about in this movie is 
the lawyer played by Alfred Molina. And, he, and he's just in like one scene and then kind of comes up again at the end for a second. Um, the character's name is Jordan Green. That scene is one of the standout scenes in the movie. Because first of all, here's the only character to um, articulate any kind of remorse yeah. for his role in facilitating this. <laughs> and you can tell right away that not only is he feeling guilt for his his role in this but he this is a man who is coming to grips with his place in the system his role his place in this system and he, when he talks about all the horrible things he's had to do and how it weighs on him and he can't sleep as a result, and he needs someone, anyone to forgive him. Um, it's really jarring to see this giant man <laughs> come at Cassie and you can see her be visibly upset and scared the whole time she's there. She's put herself in danger being around him, around, around any of these people, really. It was really terrifying because he seemed the least in control um, of all the interactions she has, but he's the most contrite. He's the only person who says he was wrong. And that you can see how visibly shaken even Cassie is by that admission because no one has given her that admission to date. It's it's crazy because when she knocks on his door, she says, your day of reckoning has come. And he doesn't question it. He doesn't ask, who are you and why are you here? It's like, I have wronged so many people in my life. You yeah. probably just represent one of them. Have a seat, have a cup of tea, because I know. you know that, that's, yeah. he's, he's the only one who can actually look her in the eye and say, yes, I know. Yeah, and the fact that he knew specifically who she was talking about, um, that really stood out to me too, because that... In a lot of this movie, Nina gets kind of, not for Cassie, but for everyone else, gets kind of erased. Yeah. So that is one of the few people who like sympathizes with her and her memory of Nina and what she's gone through. Well, I mean, and that's, you know, anytime you come into any sort of um, wrongful victim, whether it's Black lives that are taken or sexual abuse victims, the the cry is always say their name right and and that's mm -hmm. that's one of the things that like when she, like you say when she talks to so many of these other facilitators they have they they try to pull the information from their memory like she talks to Connie Britton as the dean and the dean can't really put together the details which you think you know <laughs> that's kind of terrifying for its own reason yeah. but you know that's the thing like Alfred Molina when he says he's like like you know you can see that he he really he's almost ashamed and afraid to say it but he knows he has to yeah exactly um and it's it's the work that he does even if it, it's for such a short time in this movie uh but is so yeah. great um he really stands out and he's not in it for very long it's a scene that didn't really need to be there but the fact that it is there in that way emerald fennel could have put the the guilty party like it could have been anybody. It could have been Alison Brie. It could have been Colin Burton, uh, Connie Burton. It could have been the lawyer. The fact that it that that she puts it on Alfred Molina and and you know the person who defended the you know yeah. the monster, you know that that's that I think that's a really really clever touch. This is a story about a lot of things, but I think this is a really great story, and you don't have a whole lot of them in Hollywood. A story of survivor's guilt. I I a hundred percent agree with you. 
Um, like it's not, it's not only revenge. Uh, it's not only vengeance for what happened to Nina, but it's almost like she's trying to set right. It's her survivor's remorse. It's her trauma. And she says it to Nina's mom at one point in the movie, um, surprisingly who is Molly Shannon. Um, but, uh, she says, I'm sorry, I wasn't there. It's such a painful, painful admission. And I think a big driver for Cassie's character. It's a complicated story to try to tell. Um, the fact that it's been done this elegantly is a huge mark of achievement. I, I think it's something that we're still sort of learning about too. You know, I, I don't mm -hmm. think that it was the kind of thing that was talked about certainly 20, 30 years ago. Um, and yeah, all of those moments where Cassie talks about Nina, be it to her parents who don't really understand, or even to Nina's mom who's like, honey, I know, I know yeah. how bad you feel, but this is not good for anybody. Like she says, it's yeah. not even good for Nina. We're like, yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, it's something she's not over. She's hanging on to. And it's like you said, it's really elegantly beautifully viciously put on the screen you know one, like one of the things i think is that it's important that it's in this movie because now going forward like there will be this kind of touchstone for somebody to maybe make heads or tails out of something they're feeling and they don't have a name for it mm -hmm. we have been talking and dancing around this the 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 <laughs> The, the crux of this story for a long time. So if you have not turned back, turn back now. We are going to spoil the heck out of the end of Promising Young Woman right after this. So here we go. We get to the point in this story where things have been dividing audiences. Things have been unexpectedly taking audiences and it merits discussion. So <laughs> right when it seems like Cassie is ready to start moving on with her life, um, we get the revelation that there is evidence of the assault that exists that we can clearly see and hear some of the people who are in it that Ryan was one of the people present um, and it sends Cassie into one more kind of spin of vengeance really felt like she was kind of done and wanted to move on with her life and it really just kind of pushes her over the cliff so so before we start talking about this bachelor party uh, there was something I wanted to talk about um, and it was the fact that the video exists and when we learn it exists honestly my stomach sank because i just thought i don't need to see what happened uh to know mm -hmm. what happened and i appreciate that they didn't need to show us what happened right. on that video um because so often in movies that cover this subject matter um they feel the need to show that this happened um, or mm -hmm. show it as it's happening. So I really appreciated that. Like we see Cassie's reaction to it and it's devastating and horrible. And like, that's enough. That's enough for me. And I like, I'm really grateful that they did it in that way. It's a deft touch. It's one of those differences where I can tell 
uh, Emerald Fennel's um, involvement and her approach to storytelling, where she can say, this has been really violent. This is going to get equally violent. This is not something you need. I can mm-hmm. I can include this story beat without needing to drag you somewhere and make you mire in something just so horrible. Yeah. You're right. It's a, it's a masterstroke. It's not something it's not a courtesy uh that um you see from other directors and it might be on account of the fact that a woman um has written and directed this film uh that she's so sensitive to what that could do to a viewer because the subject matter like throughout this movie is super heavy then after that after that bit of unpleasantness (laughs) we we, you know after that we we put on our our cherry stilettos and our nurse's uniform and we go to this cabin yeah uh, don't forget the rainbow colored wig, which was phenomenal. Oh, of course not. Um, but uh, yeah, she walks into that room and honestly, it felt like the most dangerous place in the world um, because we know um, we know something about all these men in that room. Maybe not all of them, but uh, the key players in that room. I was dreading every minute of her being in that cabin just seeing Al and his buddies. Uh, and he's still like the nice guy, right? Like he's, oh no, like I told you guys, no, no stripper. Uh, I'm not going to be doing anything. I'm engaged. Like he's still the nice guy. And she has to lure him upstairs to get him away from this crowd. Mm-hmm. I fully thought this is the point in the film that we're going to get a murder. Um, right. I just wow. wasn't expecting the murder that we got. I mean, I think one of the first things I notice in that scene is that I, I want to say Nina, but it's because she calls herself Nina in that scene. Cassie, when she finally does get Al away from the other guys who she's basically roofied, um, smart move, um, <laughs> and gets and gets him upstairs and and she starts like kind of questioning him the first thing i was caught about is something that is happens over and over and over leading up to it is she is so calm and composed in how she asks her questions and this is another one of those storytelling touches where i'm like she has to be you know we are so demanding on our accusers in, in this mm-hmm. world, that there is no room for rage or sorrow or, you know, words that I try not to use. They're only believe they're only credible if they can stay just unnaturally calm. And that's the yeah. crazy thing is in this movie, Cassie, at every turn when she's in front of one of these people, stays unbelievably calm there's a dismissal of any woman who's seen as hysterical or angry uh in addressing things like this yeah it's it's a really thoughtful approach she's turned the tables um and when Mm -hmm. she starts asking these questions in such a calm really clear way um he panics he is making Mm -hmm. every excuse i was young um she she asked for it like every single excuse and he is getting more and more visibly upset 
and worked up that how could you accuse me? Uh, this is the worst thing. This is what every guy is afraid of is being accused of this. And her response being, what do you think every woman is afraid of? Um, I thought that was, I thought that was brilliant. Just hats off to Emerald Fennel for writing that part. And hats off to Carrie Mulligan for playing this part too, because mm. like something like that, like that's, that's not an easy bit to play. You know, anytime you get an actress that's put into a position where they have to play something traumatic, I always ask myself, I'm like, how do you, how do you turn that off? You know, like there, there have yeah. been actors that have gone crazy from parts that they have played. There's been actors who have died from dark parts that they've played. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just so stunned and impressed that somebody is able to play something like this and then, you know, go on with, you know, go on with their week. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how uh, someone turns something like that off or separates themselves yeah. from something like that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Carrie Mulligan is just absolutely phenomenal um, in this movie. You know, unfortunately in this, in this tale, um, even though it looks like we're, uh, Cassie is going to pull some sort of a victory and, and, and avenge Nina's death, um, we get, we get her death instead. Uh, I'm going to guess that you did not see that coming because I sure didn't. <laughs> not at all. Like, uh, I I was completely silent. Um, it, it's just it happens in such a brutal way, too. Um, and you get the feeling that, you know, she never makes a mistake. And it makes you question it after the fact that if it was even a mistake uh, on her part or something she didn't expect to happen the the scene itself the the murder the suffocation of of cassie goes on for such an extended period of time that it is so uncomfortable and again like you made the point of she gives them every chance to stop she gives them every chance to correct themselves and he keeps going she fights for quite some time and he still does it. And there's no way to say, like he says, it's an accident afterwards, but we've yeah. watched the intent the whole time. And you know, it, there, there's no, there's no more playing. I'm a nice guy for, for, yeah. for any of these, like for, certainly not for his, his buddy played by, um, I just know him as Schmidt from the new girl. <laughs> yeah. You know, when Schmidt comes in and, and like helps him, And again, <laughs> there's somebody who's aiding and abetting, um, you know, there, there's no more playing that card. Um, from what I understand, the the reason why the death goes on for as long as it does is Emerald Fennel actually inquired, like, how how does a suffocation work? Like, how long would you have to keep somebody from, from breathing to actually kill them? She asked, like, a cop. And the cop yeah. told her it's going to take two, two and a half minutes. Um, oh I hate goodness. that I know that now, by the way. Oh I really hate that I know that. Um <laughs> So she's like, all right, we're staying with this for two and a half minutes. And wow. it's not bloody. It's not mm-hmm. gory. But holy shit, is it a violent yeah. death. The, the aftermath of it, too, where he spends the entire night in the room with that body. So he has mm-hmm. all night to think about what he's done. And mm-hmm. Schmidt walks in in the morning i don't know what else to call him i'm sorry but schmidt walks in in the morning yeah and um like they make these these jokes um these trope jokes about uh oh like 90s movies jock comedy jokes about the stripper being dead 
it's so uncomfortable, but the tone shifts so quickly uh, to like humor when he walks in the room. And I don't know if it's just because he's Schmidt, but um, it also the the jarring thing is how quickly he comforts Al. You didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Like I will help you. Uh, let's fix this. The comforting that Cassie needed all along goes yeah. to this guy who just yeah. killed him. And, you know, kind of like what you were saying in terms of how this director was, was um, considerate enough to her audience not to show the rape. She's also considerate enough not to show uh, the face. You know, mm-hmm. like like after Cassie's been murdered, her her face stays covered by this pillow. And yeah. however it is that Schmidt sees her, like he freaks out. So clearly yeah. it's like deeply unpleasant. And we are not privy to that sight, which I, I was I was kind of grateful for. Yeah, I completely you know, I'm agree. like, I don't need to see that. So then as if that's not crazy enough of an ending, we've got an ending after the ending where <laughs> the comeuppance is served and this as well seems to be dividing people. Yeah. Um, what did you make of that final, that final flourish? Yeah. So I, I actually enjoyed it. So like there is a sense of, of realism with ending it after Cassie died, like immediately after Cassie dies, uh, because in a lot of cases, these people don't get the justice they're seeking they don't get the revenge they need um so it's very realistic and uh it was i was resigned to that ending um because i thought that that's how it goes um but to Mm. have this kind of like you said flourish at the end uh where hopefully these people get their comeuppance um and that that text message that comes through, I thought was so brilliant. And it's odd to say that that's a a happy ending because it's absolutely not. Um, But it also makes you think, did she, did she plan this? Did she go in there knowing I'm not going to come out of this? I don't want to come out of this. This is what I want to do. It was shocking. Um, Knocked the wind right out of me, uh, but excellent. It's it's crazy because I mean you know one could say that the the tragedy of this ending is that two women had to die to bring one man to justice, yeah, and that is a tragedy. Where I choose to go with it is that the second woman decided to sacrifice herself, or it's you know mm-hmm. certainly like you say to put herself in harm's way, potentially knowing that she's not going to make it out, and and she's so calculating already that she puts all these parameters in place that if I if I don't make it out. You know, if this go, if I do have to sacrifice myself for it, I'm going to make sure that it's not for nothing. You know, like there, I don't have much going on in my life, but I'm going to make sure that this guy has absolutely nothing going on in his by the time I'm done. Um, It's, yeah, it's, I I think, again, that's like you were saying, one of those moments where you can tell that this is a, a woman telling a story. This is one of those moments because that ending, it's a lot of things at the same time. It's tragic it's playful in the fact that you know like the 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 kind of vernacular of her texts and they're they're on a pink bubble and and, you know that kind of thing um it's it's got it's kind of got this like hell yeah to it um but it's it's comp it's a complicated ending which i think is the sign of a really great movie yeah it's also got a lot of humor in it in that it's it's a really sick joke but uh, you watch oh, yeah. his friends like scatter to the wind. It closes some of those 
relationships too. Like uh, Laverne Cox gets receives Cassie's necklace um, mm-hmm. as a memory of her because she's been remembering someone else for the entire movie. It is polarizing. Like the discussions around this ending are quite polarized. Uh, but generally, like I just I thought it was just so great. Um, and clever. No, me too. Um, we, you know, we could be talking about this movie for a long time. We already have, um, but we do end every conversation here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Uh, Ruby Dillon, what would be your souvenir from uh, Emerald Fennel's promising young woman? So, if I'm being practical, uh, it's going to be the uh, sure. pink luggage she gets for her birthday. <laughs> um, which is a really pointed get out. Um, but that luggage yeah. is expensive. So uh, yeah. I'd like to have it. Uh, but if, if I didn't, if I didn't need that, I mean, I'm not going anywhere. Um, the, the wig, the rainbow wig. Hmm. I, I think it's just so cool. I don't know where I would wear it. I, I just think it's fantastic. And when I like every single image of this movie for me um, is that wig, you know, it's kind of crazy. Like, I, I could see both some really good and yet really inappropriate Halloween costumes coming out of that. Yeah, you know? I was actually thinking about that. Like, uh, some people will miss the point the way they did with Wolf of Wall Street and yeah, use this and dress makeup. up. Gentlemen, if a woman is in the bar next Halloween, assuming we can go to the bar next Halloween, and she is dressed up in that costume, do not approach. Yeah. That is a bad idea. My souvenir, um, my souvenir is something intangible. My souvenir is actually the opening shot of this movie. Um, you know, I, I've kind of been fascinated the last little while with the female gaze when it comes mm-hmm. to movie making. And I love that the opening shot is of a bunch of guys that can best be described <laughs> as dad bods dancing <laughs> yeah. as if they're, you know, background dancers in a, in a hip hop video. And it's like, it's so absurd. You know, I mean, it's great because here, here's, here's a shot that's like, dudes, this is what you look like. Yeah, and exactly. you know you do. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I love that shot so much because it's just it just lays it all so bare. You know, like of all of the other moments in this movie that are candy colored in, in order to like give us an, an access point into something unsavory. Here's a shot that's just like, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I'm just gonna put like I'm just gonna let you look at what you look like and let you make up your own mind. Yeah, it was pretty hilarious, I and I like I was like I've seen this before <laughs> when it opened. Yeah. So yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I, I've I've been to that bar. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Ruby Dillon, what do you give Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman? Four. Just if yeah. I could give yeah. it five, it would get five. I loved it so yeah, much. Yeah, this is this is an incredible movie. It's one of the best movies of the year. Um, I do readily admit and and understand people's um, hangups with it and people's mm-hmm. um, disgust and dismay, and those are absolutely valid. I can just speak for myself. And like Ruby said earlier, you know, you you and I would recommend this movie, but you kind of have to give people all kinds of qualifiers and tell them to beware. And if somebody came back to you and they're like. You know, what the hell did you just make me watch? Yeah, I get that too. <laughs> yep. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you think this movie is terrible. Maybe you think that we're being, uh, you know, too uh, not kind enough in this movie. And it's an instant classic. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Emerald Fennel's 
promising young woman, we are going to take a quick break here and uh, flip the record over to play to play you some more tunes right after this. So come on back. Back. She's Ruby Dillon. I'm Ryan McNeil. It is matinee cast 253, I think. It's been it's been a long show. 253. It's also been a long day, folks. So please pardon my uh, misunderstanding. It's been a long pandemic. It's been a long 2020s so far. It's been a long everything. But uh, we're happy that you're here. Ruby Dillon's here. I'm here. Uh, you're hearing us uh, hang out for the first time live on the matinee cast. Um, this is the other side. It's the time of the show where we kind of go further down the road and talk about other movies that would work as companion movies um, with uh, with our main feature topic, this episode being Promising Young Woman. Um, you already alluded. I think we both have a movie in mind as, as our starting point. So why don't you get us started <laughs> yeah. with your first selection? Sure. So um, Kill Bill, you already mentioned it at the top um, oh, of the episode. That actually wasn't what I thought you were going to talk about. Yes. So let's talk about Kill Bill. <laughs> yeah. So um, classic, classic revenge tale of woman who has been wronged um, and is exacting her revenge on those who wronged her over two volumes. Um, uh, I prefer volume two, uh, even though I know Volume One has the iconic Bruce Lee tracksuit and uh, the Crazy Eight fight, uh, I just, uh, I just, I just loved Volume Two, and that's where she she gets her revenge, she gets her ending. Um, where do you stand on westerns? I love them because because Part Two is the what is basically a western, right? So maybe that's why it gravit it, like it latches for you a little bit more. Potentially, yeah. Like I, it's it is it's more of a a classic movie. Um, so yeah, I could see I would classify it as a western actually. The the music, everything about it lends itself to western. I mean, we spend most of it in little trailers uh with Michael Madsen. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's dusty. It's, you know, we we've got like kind of classic like Sergio Leone type music playing in the background. Mm-hmm. We've sort of dispensed with a lot of the catchier soundtrack moments i mean that's that's another way that the two movies marry up nicely is movies movies with great soundtracks um it's been a minute since i watched either of the kill bill movies um i did have the pleasure back when after the second one dropped of watching them as a double feature in the theater to like see them as one long basically four and a half hour movie yeah it was it was a trip um, I, it's, it's funny because I, I think about that movie now and I think to myself, how was, he, how was Quentin ever going to try to release that as one film? Because that, that movie was, people may forget that that movie was delayed and delayed and delayed. It was actually supposed to play TIFF, believe it or not. 2003, really? it was supposed to play, yes, yes. It was supposed to be part of Midnight Madness, but they just couldn't get it ready in time. And, um, be, and, and, and yeah, rightfully so, because I'm like, Unless he was always talking to Miramax about releasing it as a very long movie, about a very long, like four hour movie, he never could get it down to time. So I don't know if maybe somewhere along, I'm sure I could just wiki this as we talk, but what fun is that? I don't know if at some point or another, they just decided (laughs) instead of narrowing it down to just broaden it out to two movies. And that was how it all happened. But yeah, I did get a chance to watch it in a theater. Like there was, you know, an intermission in between. Um, and 
yeah, it, it plays as this big, epic, bloody tale that, you know, I think a lot of people kind of had in mind going into Promising Young Woman. They're like, okay, this is going to be like a whole new, you know, kill bill for, for the, for, for the, these times. Yeah. I think, I it's, think that's what I went in thinking it was going to be as well. That like, I mean, they, they make a joke, a kind of a joke about it when she's walking home from her first encounter and we don't know what happens on these encounters yet. Um, and she's, she's eating a, a jelly donut or something and, or a hot dog. I don't oh, know. Yeah. She's eating, but it's like getting all over her white shoes. And, uh, that's what I expected and was pleasantly surprised. And I don't mean that it would make a great, I mean, triple feature really if we're going to go to both the Kill Bill movies. <laughs> yeah. Just take, take a Sunday, watch all three. Why not? Yeah. Um, no, well, my, my first selection for the other side, actually, this is where I thought you were going and where I kind of teased during the course of the conversation. Um, I went back to my introduction uh, to Carrie Mulligan in 2009 mm-hmm. um, and also Alfred Molina, who was in this movie. Um, I went back to an education that's also on my list. <laughs> An education, which, uh, you know, it kind of holds a special place in my heart because that was actually the very first matinee cast. We talked about an education um, and we talked about like all of the various things that that movie had to say. That movie's directed by Lauren Scherfig. So there's another female director who approaches the subject matter with, you know, a different sensibility than you're used to seeing mm-hmm. um, given that, you know, most of the movies that we've seen are, are directed by men. It was, mulligan's coming out party but it it seems like such a time capsule now because she's so young in that yeah. movie like she's not she's play, she's playing a t te- she's playing a kid she's playing like a a high school senior she's 24 by the time we see her but she can convincingly play an 18 year old and you know it was a sign of things to come really and her i guess Alpha um, melina is also excellent in that movie um and their relationship and dynamic is completely different uh but that's a good link the both of them i mean that was another movie that was up for best picture i kind of feel like people kind of forgot about i feel like people forgot about a lot to do with that movie (laughs) you know whether it was mulligan's performance or the rest of the cast like Rosamund Pike gives an amazing performance in that movie that's kind mm-hmm. of underrated because she plays a very specific role. Um, yeah. Dominic Cooper and Peter Sarsgaard are playing some very specific types of of men in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you know, the other women in um, Carrie Mulligan's character's name is Jenny. The other women in Jenny's life are teacher and her headmistress, played by Olivia Williams and Emma Thompson specifically. Like they are trying to really trying to drill into her head you we understand what you're going through and we want to help you we want to guide you through it um you know of course carrie mulligan is a teenage girl so she has something to say about that um yeah i I, it's i that movie i feel like it's aged amazingly well and it doesn't get near the respect it deserves Mm -hmm. i i don't know i only know a handful of people who have actually seen it uh so oh man yeah, I know. Next I time know. you're, you know, instead, instead, instead of putting on the Adam Sandler movie, next time I'm like, guys, you want to watch an education? Yeah, exactly. Oh, shit, it's going to go over great. Um, all right, what's another movie that you had to go along with Promising Young Woman? Um, I actually chose Birds of Prey. Um, it, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it is a, a film that's directed by a woman. Um, it uses those candy colors uh, as well uh, throughout it. Um, and it's got really 
toxic male characters who are like they're almost characters i mean they are they're comic book characters uh but uh the soundtrack is also full of like loud fun female-led pop music um and i I, it's a really fun movie uh but aesthetically i feel like it really it really aligns with what we saw in promising young women. There's a lot of darkness to that movie. And I mean, going beyond the fact that it's got an R rating, you know, you're dealing with, you know, our main character who has spent the better part of her, you know, legacy in pop culture as fanboy fodder Yeah, is now we're, we're now needing to regard her as, you know, the survivor of a toxic relationship. And, that's a ballsy move, pun intended. That is a ballsy move um, to hang a story on. I, I thought it was really great. Like, I think it's my favorite of the kind of DC movies that have come out recently. Um, it's really playful uh, in the way that it tackles some of those those issues that that you talked about, um, like talking about a tox- leaving a toxic relationship and, spoiler alert, Harley Quinn literally blows up a toxic chemical plant um, <laughs> when she ends her relationship with the Joker. So um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's really fun and it is overlooked and unfortunately had so much like of that fanboy backlash uh, over like how Harley looks in that movie, um, unfortunately, which is so gross, but uh, she looks fantastic. Uh, she looks great. Yeah. Uh, I think the movie's really fun. I, I wish more people saw it. I'm with you. I mean, this it's a movie that was, it's weird to think of a comic book movie as being underseen, but that is definitely a movie I would think is deeply underseen. And I hope we get more from uh, Kathy Yan, who directed that movie and, and Harley's whole, you know, uh, Harley and the birds of prey. Like I, you know, I, I know she's going to be coming back in the suicide squad, but that's yeah. not quite putting her different. in the same sort of agency. Yeah. So, yeah. um, well, well, my next one that I'm only going to touch on really quickly because I feel like it comes up on this show a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot um, is um, the movie that plays in the background of Promising Young Woman. And we hear the soundtrack once uh, once or twice as well is the 1955 movie Night of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. Yep. Her parents are watching a movie on their couch, which, by the way, like props, pardon the pun, props to the. Uh, uh, a set designer of this movie because that house is incredible. It's I've amazing. been to that house; it's like, fantastic. I can, hear, I can hear what the sofa sounds like when you sit on it. That's yeah, yeah, I can feel that carpet under my feet. I know <laughs> how deep I'm going to sink into that carpet. Um, the, the the parents are watching. The parents are watching Night of the Hunter, and later on in the movie, we hear one of the songs from Night of the Hunter, and in, in this really kind of haunting manner. Um, it's another movie where the criminal is a supposedly nice person it's a preacher mm-hmm. you know so everybody like, nobody thinks like a preacher is not going to do these kinds of things <sighs> what are you no, know it's 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 a it's a neat wink i'm sure it's got layers that i really didn't dig into usually happens when you include a movie within a movie um but yeah night of the hunter and i'm always just happy to talk about night of the hunter because i think that's one of the best films <laughs> of all time um so yeah if you haven't seen it by now and you've watched promising young woman move on to night of the hunter um what else you got for us i know we talked about it before um and i'm not a crazy stan actually i probably am but get out um yeah. I <laughs> not not literally not literally um get out um gave me uh the same kind of 
I want to talk about this movie with everyone after I saw it. And it also touches on this really complicated social and justice related issue in a very clever, different, sometimes comical way. And I think that both films like Get Out and Promising Young Woman really effectively carry a really heavy message. Um, so, and obviously, you know, I love it so much. Uh, so I would, I, I think it would be a kind of heavy, uh, but really excellent double feature. I think that both films use the medium to the best extent. Like both of them find a way to entertain the audience while they are walking them down a very, very dark path. And and that's mm-hmm. a really, really hard needle to thread. So good call. Yeah. You t- you talked about it earlier, so I'm not going to let you go on too much about it right now. But I, I, I see, yeah. I, I totally see your work. My last one, um, I'm going back a little wee bit to 1988. Um, have you ever seen a movie? Uh, it was directed by Jonathan Kaplan with uh, Jodie Foster called The Accused. I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. And I think I know what the yes. cover of it looks like. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it's kind of got a typical 1980s uh, drama poster. Um, Jodie Foster uh, won her first Oscar uh, for this movie, where she plays a woman who is gang raped in a bar, and is and she strangely in the 80s manages to actually get her case taken up, and it becomes this whole kind of the whole thing of like every, everything you can think of of victim blaming of what were you wearing of how much had you had to drink all of those kinds of qualifiers that we put women through before we will even give them a shot at justice mm-hmm. let alone you know actually see it through and yeah. the accused will it, it'll make you just want to beat your head against the wall for everything that her character, her character's name is uh, Sarah, um, goes through in this search for justice. And then you'll remind yourself that this movie is more than 30 years old, you know? And it's like how, how far we have not come. And you you know, like it's, it's at one point, like you want to say to yourself, we'll watch these movies and it'll be like watching mad men of, man, you remember when this used to be the way and, and then you'll watch something like this and it's like, oh man, you know, um, it's a, it's a really great movie. It's, it's Jodie Foster is incredible in it. Kelly McGillis is her lawyer is also incredible in it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's just as poignant today as it was in 1988, possibly more so. It's one of those eighties dramas that's kind of got tamped down a little bit like back in you know back in the 80s and the early 90s like a lot of people knew about the accused but as time has gone on it's one of those films that it, because it doesn't get talked about quite as often it's it's kind of harder to keep it in the consciousness and i feel like it's a movie that yeah. needs to stay in the consciousness well cool. i so, will give it a shot that's my i have last. not seen it <laughs> yeah give it, yeah you know like like everything else we've been talking about kind of go in Trep, like if you're already having a bad day, it's not a good day to watch The Accused. Um, but, sure, but do give it a go. You've got one more movie for us. What do you got as one more oh, other yeah. side to go along with Promising Young Woman? Um, I would go with 
Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 version. And you did, you talked about this a little bit before about kind of the first. Oh, you're ending us on a happy note. I like this. Okay. Yes, please. It's actually my comfort movie. Um, And Carrie Mulligan is in it as one of the Bennett sisters, but um, she's not the central character. She's kind of in and around the peripheral and she's kind of silly in it. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's beautiful. The reason why it's my comfort movie is like, you just give me a piano, some, some period drama and costumes and like it looks like a painting it's very soothing and after something that is as heavy um as jarring and like obviously brilliant but devastating as promising young woman maybe you want a palate cleanser like you said or something just softer uh especially if it's going to be late at night so uh yeah i go with pride and prejudice Okay, so first of all, nicely done, because that is not at all where I thought this conversation was going to end. Another movie whose cast goes and goes and goes. You know, you've got Sutherland, in, Donald Sutherland in this movie, Tom Hollander's in this movie, Rosamund Pike, Jenna Malone, Judy Dench. Um, you know, Carrie Mulligan, I think she, like, she's like, way down the list like yeah. when, when you're looking at the opening credits you get to a lot of people before we get to Carrie Mulligan uh, in this movie. It's, um, it's crazy, because I know you know, when you talk to most of the Austin people, they swear up and down by that BBC version with Colin Firth. Sure. <laughs> but I hear you're right. But yeah, okay, exactly. But I hear as, as as time goes on, I hear more and more this 2005 version get elevated higher and higher in people's esteem. I think it's perfect. <laughs> I I will rewatch it so many times. Um, it just is one of those movies that feels like a warm hug. So yeah, I, I absolutely love it. I could talk about it for an hour. I'm sure. The crazy thing for me about it, watching it now is that between shows like succession and, uh, movies <laughs> like the assistant, I have become, so I, I've become like, I've started to regard Matthew McFadden as one of the world's great D bags. So to yeah. see him playing Mr. Darcy, it takes a little bit of adjusting now. You really can't go backwards with that. Like, I don't think you're going to enjoy it as much as I did because that was my introduction to him. Yeah. It's really hard to remove Tom from succession from your mind yeah. um, when you watch him, but he looks a little bit different. So that might help. <laughs> Oh yeah, and and he plays it well. Like I mean, uh, props to Matthew McFadden because he the, the guy has range. You know, he oh, can definitely. play a convincing asshole and can you know walk onto your set as Darcy, and you totally buy it. So there we go. Oh man, so many good movies to talk about, and so many good conversations about these movies. I am so happy Ruby Dillon took my invitation and came by because that is episode two hundred fifty three of the Matinee Cast. Um, come on back on Monday, February twenty second for episode two hundred fifty four. I'm pretty sure we will be discussing Nomad land and i am very very excited to be digging into that movie um ruby you're not writing so much these days but if people (laughs) want to find you on twitter where can they uh, where can they follow you yep it's at ruby d so r-o-o-b-y-d-e-e just sounding out my name have i totally ruined your secret identity by throwing your last name around like left right and center on this episode uh the way i tweet is the way i talk so it's fine people would have figured it out (laughs) i mean you know you're talking to the guy who went by uh who went with an alias for the first uh four years of his podcasting (laughs) and writing career so i I do understand the need for anonymity even though i've just thrown it to the wind (laughs) my site is thematinee.ca for more audio content you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting along with finding them in the usual places like Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google, Stitcher, and 
Apple, you can now also find the show on TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If you have a podcatcher of choice that I did not mention, I can't see how you would, um, let me know and I'll put my show there too. Feedback on Promising Young Woman can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at the matinee.ca. Twitter, I am matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Ruby? Uh, no, just thank you for having me. Like I said, this is the first time I've done this podcasting, um, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I, I totally see you getting into this. Like you, you were gonna be <laughs> by this time next year. You're either gonna have your own show, or you're gonna be somebody else's regular guest. Yikes! I do not have a voice for radio, so I appreciate that. <laughs> I beg to differ. For Ruby, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. Uh-huh.